Open your Bibles. This is kind of weird. I think, I think it's been like four weeks that I haven't been here. Um, so sorry, I wasn't, I don't want to, I wasn't playing hooky or anything. But uh, okay, we're in, we're in the book of Hebrews. We still are. Uh, and Andrew did a great job last week. How many of you are here? Yeah, he did. What's all this applause about? After every single song, I mention Andrew. It's like... <laughs> It's not the Tonight Show, you know, it's like a, <laughs> be happy, 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 clappy, yeah. Um, yeah, well, if Hebrews makes you happy, then I know that uh, you're, you're welcome with the Lord because uh, there's a lot of challenges in the book of Hebrews. Um, so uh, he did a great job going through this. I'm going to go back, not to correct anything he did, I'm going to take it from a different angle. Uh, and then, so we'll, we'll start about halfway through chapter three, but we'll just go quickly through a lot of that. Um, and, and I don't think he touched on this, but I know I did uh, the last time we were in Hebrew. So um, actually, let me read something and then we'll come back into it. Uh, so he says in uh, chapter three, beginning in verse seven, He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you'll hear his voice, and he's quoting Psalm 95, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. And so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Um, stop there for a minute. So, that, so that's, he's quoting from Psalm 95. He's actually going to quote part of that, that passage that I just read uh, a number of times in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's actually going to use the word rest in chapter 3 and chapter 4 11 times. Rest is a key idea here that he wants us to understand. Um, context is everything in Bible study, uh, and very often, and this is, a, this is a sad state of affairs, probably doesn't apply to you, uh, but many Christians it does apply to, people who read only the New Testament and never read the Old Testament. So they don't understand the references back in the Old Testament. Or if they read the Old Testament, they might read, you know, creation in Genesis, or they might read some Psalms, but they don't get the full narrative, you know, so context is everything. Context is king. Uh, When it's an old, uh, it's an old saying, but it's true that a text taken out of context to be used as a proof text is nothing but pretext. And, and it's true. You have to understand what it means. So what's he getting at here? There are, there are five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. And for those of you who might be new with us, or if you're not, and a lot of people really aren't that familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's kind of the, I don't want to call it a riddle, but some people do see it as the riddle of the New Testament. Um, the, the audience are Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. They're second generation Christians. They're, you know, they're, this is, this is probably written somewhere around 65, 66, maybe even 67 AD. So uh, just to put this in historical context, obviously then the, the destruction of Jerusalem has not happened yet. That's going to happen in 70. But of course, you know, Christ was crucified, died, 
buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven in 32 AD. Now, those are actually really important dates, 32 AD and 70 AD. By the way, how many years are there between 32 and 70 AD? 38. Some of you couldn't care less, and I understand. But keep it in mind as we go back into context here. So the author, who and never specified, it's an anonymous book. I do believe it's Paul for a lot of reasons. We went over that earlier, but it's not critical to our understanding per se. He's speaking to Hebrew Christians who are going astray. They're, they're under persecution. They're under persecution by their families. They're under persecution by uh, the, the, the priesthood, by the, the temple, I'll, I'll call it the leadership, the leadership of Israel. And, and so they're, they're under this persecution. They're experiencing a great deal of pressure. And as a result of that, and, and the kind of criticism, and you've heard some of it yourself from your own families, from your co-workers when you get saved, they're going, what, you believe that kind of stuff? Really? You believe in this Jesus who, who died and resurrected? He's not even you know, buried somewhere anymore, and you actually believe he's coming back? Like, what are you smoking? You know, I mean, really. I mean, that's, that's the way many of us have experienced. And, and, but this is even worse. And, and, and at the same time, while they're getting all that criticism, and in many, times, in many ways having been cut off from their families, cut off from Israel, they can't find a job. Now they're really in poverty. It's really a tough situation. And church doesn't look like this back then. They're meeting in little hovels. They're, they're meeting in, in small groups where they can pray together and ask God for direction and for food and things like that. We don't, we don't appreciate much of that in our, in our generation and in our culture, but that's what they were going through. And by contrast, here's this glorious temple. The, the, the second temple, which now has been you know, overbuilt really by King Herod, it's an enormous place. The, the rabbis used to say, anybody who's never seen the temple has never seen a beautiful thing. It was just, it was outstanding, it was over the top. So much, you know, the, 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 the marble and the gold, it was just amazing. And so they know that's happening, and the smoke is going up from the altar all day long, and it's like, wow, that's where the sacrifices are happening. That's the religion. That's the centerpiece of Israel, and here I am a Jew. And I've gone off to follow this itinerant rabbi who was crucified, rose again. I never saw it. I'm a second generation. I've just heard the stories, and I'm under all this pressure. And so the temptation is to go back. And, and the author is addressing them and saying there are warnings, things, to, things not to do, things we have to be careful of. And so he brings this topic up, which for many of us, for Christians who don't read the Old Testament, we don't, it, it sounds like a riddle, like, okay, why did he just bring this up? Today, if you hear his voice, then don't harden your hearts as your fathers did during the rebellion out in the wilderness. Well, what rebellion? What are we talking about? What revolution happened? What, what's going on? Glad you asked. So, and some of you know, and I know this is review, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was that I was here, um, <laughs> I've lost touch. But uh, we talked about this. So here they are. They leave, ex they leave Exodus. They, they're the Exodus generation who leave Egypt under Moses' leadership, right? Uh, and the old saying, you know, nine plagues didn't change Yul Brenner's mind. And so the death of the, the firstborn was the tenth plague that God brought on Egypt. 
And Pharaoh said to Moses, finally, just get out of here. Just get out of here. Don't come back. Just keep moving. And so they went out. And after a while, Pharaoh said, I lost my mind. Why did I do that? And so he gathered up all of his troops and all of his chariots, and they went after him. You saw the movie. And so they, uh, they go out, and, and here now is a group of upwards of three million people. Think about that. Who've made it as far as the Red Sea. It's not a swamp. It's not 18 inches of water, no matter what some people want to tell you. It's a mighty ocean. They're up against it. And now, here's this cloud of dust from all of these chariots, and the thunder is coming after them. And of course, they're saying to Moses, you brought us out here to die. Like, of course I did. Um, and Moses didn't know what to do, and the, the Lord said, lift up your staff, I'll take care of the rest. And of course, he opens up the Red Sea. We all know the story. So they cross the Red Sea. God buries the, you know, Pharaoh and, and all of his chariots and all of his men in the Red Sea, and they go across. And, and, and okay, so now, over the course of the next two years, they've, they've crossed over into, uh, basically, Saudi Arabia, and, and God has taught them. He's given them the law at Sinai. He has taught them how to build the tabernacle. All these things happen in two years. They're... They're dying of thirst. He gives them water from the rock. They're beginning to starve. He gives them miracle food every morning, manna on the ground. I mean, it's just, it's really an amazing story that if we're not careful, we've, we've allowed to think of, our, allowed ourselves to think of as a cliche. But he really did all of that. It really did happen. Enough for two and a half or three million people. And they make it to the edge of the wilderness in the edge of Canaan, which is the promised land. God has said, I'm going to bring you into land that will flow with milk and honey. And so they sent out a committee, 12 spies, but it's a committee. And they send out one, one representative from each of the 12 tribes. For 40 days, they walk through Canaan. They come back and they bring the report. They said, in fact, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. In fact, look at this bunch of grapes, and they hold up this bunch of grapes with, you know, like softball-sized grapes, which actually, everybody thinks it's the Star of David, which is the national symbol of Israel. It's actually, if you look at their coin, uh, the, the national symbol of Israel is that bunch of grapes. And, they, and so they all agreed, all, the, the committee all agreed, oh, yeah, it really is everything God said. But 10 of them had an evil report. They said, but we were there, and we saw the Nephilim there. They were giants, and we were grasshoppers in their sight, and also in our own. In other words, they saw themselves as nothing compared to those giants. We can't go in, because if we go in, our, our children are going to die there. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, nah, come on. We should, God took us out of Egypt he, he destroyed Egypt from being such a great empire. He took us through the Red Sea. He gave us manna. He's given us water. He's done all of these things. And now, now, you're going to say, let's not do this now? Are you kidding? Come on, let's go. But all the people said, no, nah, no, nah, time out. That doesn't sound good to us. We shouldn't do this. Now, you got to understand, it's been two years, and the people continue to rebel. And then God answers their needs, and they move on. This time, they say, we're not going to go. That's what God's referring to here. 
And so God says to Moses, back off. You're not going in. And for every day that the spies were in the land, all of the nation will spend one year wandering through the wilderness. I'll lead you, but you'll wander through the wilderness. I'll give you credit for the first two years. So that means they, they traveled from 40 days in, as the spies went in. That would be 40 years, right? But he gave them credit for the two years, so that means they, how many years? That's an interesting number. I'm just saying. It's an interesting number. You gotta think like a rabbi. So that's an important point. This is what's being referred to here. And I'm drumming this drum for a reason. This idea runs through the entire book of Hebrews. And it's going to come through in that, if you're familiar with the book, and I hope, hopefully you've read it already, but when we get to the, the worst of all the, the warnings that everybody gets freaked out by, when we get to chapter six, if we don't understand that, we come away with all kinds of conclusions. We conclude, oh, you can lose your salvation, these kinds of things. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. And so it becomes a really important idea as we go in here. So God has done all of this for the next 38 years. What God says is, you think your children are gonna die in the promised land. Uh, actually, you're gonna die out here and your children are gonna go in. Not one of you, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, are going to go in, except for the people who were younger, 19 and below. Those ages will continue to go, but those people 20 and above, their carcasses were left in the wilderness. 88 funerals a day for the next 38 years, just to get an idea of how many people are dying. And so, or about 1.2 million or so. Um, so, uh, let's read through a few more verses here. Uh, he says, so beware, brethren, uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Interesting word, he keeps talking about today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. They were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Their, their, their ancestors' hearts were hardened. We're, we're speaking of 1,400 years earlier than this was written. Their, their ancestors' hearts were hardened. You have to ask about what? I'm glad you asked. Their ancestors' hearts were hardened against God's promises. Now, you'd think, who would ever do that? Who in their right mind who claims to know God could ever be hardened against any of the promises of God? Surely we wouldn't, right? I know you guys wouldn't do that. But what do you think that means? What do you think that means for, for their ancestors beginning with the 10 who gave the evil report, and then all the rest who went along with it, what were they really concluding? Whether they said it with their mouths or not, what were they really saying? God can't do this. Oh yeah, Moses says, 
God said, I'm going to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey. Oh, Moses said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we went across the Red Sea, but who knows? It was a strong wind we got through, and the, the water was blown away. I mean, people with lots of letters after their name say that now, so why didn't they say it then? And, and yeah, miracle food every day, every single morning. Every, even then, while they were rebelling, God was still feeding them. But you know, those things happen. Some things are a coincidence, I guess. Water from the rock. We're talking about the Saudi Arabian wilderness where there's hardly a half an inch of rain annually. But yet from one rock, and some of you have seen the pictures of that rock. It's available online, you can find it. From that one rock, enough water always to water two and a half million people and their flocks, I might say. But God can't deliver us. But God can't do that. You say, how can anybody be so foolish? Probably just as easily as us. Probably just as easily as we who say, yeah, yeah, I know that God said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I know God said he'll take care of all of my needs. But I got to do this in order to make sure. In order to make sure. Because faith for a lot of us, if we're not careful, is just the religious activity. It's a word we drop among the faithful. It's a word we use in our religious conversation. But living by faith is different than that. And many of us, if we're not careful, can fall into that same trap. Now, the, the reason I'm droning on and on about this is because we make, we come to a conclusion that is wrong. Many, many of us, I did for years, come to the conclusion that, yeah, God said, you don't believe me, then you'll die here. And so we assume, therefore, they were not saved. Well, they weren't saved in the sense that they didn't go into the promised land. But were they God's people? Easy to say. But were they God's people? And how would we know? God said, you became my people in the night that you put the blood on the doorpost. It was the blood. It's always the blood. It's always the blood. You became a nation that evening. You became my people that evening. So even though they died because of their hardened hearts, they died because of their rebellion against the promises of God, it doesn't mean they ceased to be his people. They were still his people. Now, we're, we're using terminology sometimes that sounds very Christian, but they weren't Christian, right? It's a different covenant they were under, but same God. So I, I'm saying this because it becomes important for us as we, and we're not going to get into the, the warning in chapter 6. We'll do that next week. But, but it becomes very important to understand that when we get into chapter 6, that they didn't, even though they died, in the wilderness over the course of the next 38 years, they never ceased to be God's people. Which brings us to the question, some of you are saying, he'll never get out of chapter three. <laughs> no, I will. We're gonna, we're gonna get cruising in a minute. But it, it brings us to the question of, well, what is the promised land then? What does it represent? Yeah. Many of us think it represents heaven. Of course, the Bible never says that. Many people think that you know, crossing the Jordan 
because, because we, we get our ideas from music. You know, so a lot of the old hymns and things like that give us the idea that, you know, crossing the Jordan is a picture of dying and going into heaven. But God never said that. The promised land was a land he promised to his people where he was going to do something special. And if you think about it, even in those early days under Joshua, as they came in, they, they battled the giants, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the different battles they were under where, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, what, the, the hailstones, you know, like 75 pound hailstones are coming down and killing all of their enemies, giants. And the marksmanship of God is incredible because hailstones are just coming out of, of the sky and killing only the enemies and not the Israelites, right? Well, they had nothing to do with that, the Israelites, right? They had to go by faith. They had to walk by faith and not by sight. The promised land is a picture of living in the promises of God. For the Christian, the land of Canaan, for the Christian, the promised land for Israel is a picture of the spirit-filled life where we walk by faith and not by sight. It is not, get it out of your mind, it's not a picture of heaven at all. That's not what it's about. God's saying, I've got something so beautiful, so abundant, so fruitful, and so blessed for you. You just gotta believe me. You just gotta believe me. And the same principle exists today. I've got something great for you. I've got a life of peace. I've got a life of power. I've got a life of fruitfulness for you. You have to be born again and walk by the power and the infilling of my Holy Spirit. If you want to walk by religion, you're going to, you can be born again, but you're not going to have any power in your life. You have to, by faith, receive my Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit and live by the power of the Spirit. Okay, so... So there are parallels, there are more, but for our purposes tonight, those are some parallels for us. He said, but they rebelled. They were hardened of heart. Hardened what? Well, you can say hardened against Moses. Hardened against, hardened against God. So only two people, even Moses himself, was not allowed to go in. Not because of that rebellion, but because of something that happens later on. Moses, he was still saved, right? We see him later on at the transfiguration. So these people didn't lose their salvation. It's nothing like that. Okay, I've said it enough. I'm, I hope you believe it. Um, so, so then he says, so beware, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another. Instead of that, do this. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. That's a key word. Take a pen and circle the word partakers. If you don't have a pen, grab someone else's pen and circle it. If you don't have a Bible, circle the word in someone else's Bible. But partaker, it's an important word. Partaker in English, metakoi. In Greek, M-E-T-A-C-H-O-I, metakoi, partaker. It's a very important word. Part, to be a partaker is to partake in the greater things that God promises. To not be a partaker, you can still be born again. Now follow what I'm saying. I know everybody got caught up in circling. Okay? Follow what I'm saying to be a partaker, you can be born again, go to heaven, and not be a partaker. 
It's a principle that you're going to find. After I say this, as you read through the New Testament, you'll see it all over the place. Because, and, and we talked a lot about this in our Revelation study in terms of the millennial kingdom and uh, the judgment seat of Christ, right? Every, every one of us in here should know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that each of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the way we've lived our lives as Christians. Judgment for our sins was placed on Jesus Christ on that cross. So you're not going to, if you're born again, none of us are going to face a judgment for our sins, but we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for the way we lived as Christians to receive a reward, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, to receive a reward, and rewards is a plural, for the way we for the way we lived, or to, quote, suffer loss, loss of reward. So the partaker will receive rewards. Inheritance is the other word for reward. That's our inheritance. Your salvation is not your inheritance. That's a gift of God, okay? But the inheritance that we receive as Christians are the rewards and they will determine the way that we will live and what life will be like for us in the millennial kingdom. If we were to summarize it down, maybe that's the best way to do it. Every Christian is going to enter into eternity, I mean, into heaven, into glory, and ultimately in the millennial kingdom and then the new, new, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, right? Every believer will do that. But the partakers in this life, the partakers of, of the, the fuller things of God, the, the fullness of the spirit, and, and to be obedient to his leading in our lives, to be a partaker, a metakoi, those will also receive inheritance on top of going into the kingdom. So there's that additional item. So the, salvation is a gift. The inheritance, the rewards, are based on how we lived in this life if we were Partakers, Medicoy. Okay, so he says, so verse 14, though we're really going to make promises, promises you're saying, but we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, we continue to walk with him. It's not like if you cease to walk with him, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we continue to walk with him as partakers, we're going to continue to walk in, the obedience, in obedience to him, the fullness of his spirit, and will receive those rewards, that inheritance. For we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it's said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry? Forty years, God. With whom was God angry those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear? Think about that. When God swears something, when God takes an oath, and who's he going to swear by? There's no one to swear by except himself, right? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? And so we see they could not enter in. Why? because of unbelief. Not because they didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that God was able to do what God had promised God would do. See, it's the worst conclusion you could take from this is, you know those Hebrews. 
Those Jews, stiff-necked generation, you know, they're always like that. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all these things happen to them as examples for us. We're no different. We, we always like to say, you know, Israel, they all have the same blood type, be negative, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, you're fine, you can make the jokes about it and all that, but so are we. We do the same thing, we, you know, and we say, you know, I, I'm just going to get by. I don't, know, I don't know how some of these people, some of these Christians believe some of the stuff they do, but I'm just, as long as I go to church, I'm okay. Now, there's so much more that God has for us. It's, will I believe the things that I read in his word? That's really the question. And he's going to give us the reason why if I ever get into chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us, by the way, that let us, I didn't count how many times, but let us is used many times in, in this book. And regardless of who you think it is, I happen to think it's Paul. But the, the, the writer clearly is a Christian, right? Some people want to think that uh, the writer is writing to uh, Jews in general, that there's saved and unsaved among them. No, no, he's speaking to Jewish believers. That's why he says us. The us is not a racial or an ethnic us. It's a spiritual us. Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, not fear like terror, but fear like trust, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest." although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Well, actually, he says here, for he has spoken in a certain place, that place would be Genesis chapter 2, um, he's spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. By the way, and we all know that, right? We've read that before. Why did God rest? Was God tired? You know, sometimes we get this idea that God rested. You can almost get this idea like, well, there's a hammock. And he says, that was, that, that. that was a lot of work. I'm just going to take a load off here. Yeah. No, why did he rest? Finished. Well, it becomes an example. But he didn't do it to be an example. He did it because his work was complete. What does rest mean? There's a lot of different definitions for rest. Rest can be the cessation of action. You can, you can cease from moving and, and rest. You can cease from laboring, working. Um, you can cease because something is complete. That's rest. The sleep is rest. We even use it in the context of death, that to have entered eternal rest. Right? We, so there's a lot of different ways, to, but there's another way of looking at it. And these two ideas, cessation of work, cessation from labor, is one way. That the Hebrew word is uh, Shabbat, which even today, Sabbath, we get the English word Sabbath, but Shabbat. It's a verb and it's a noun. You, you Shabbat, that's the verb, or, or you Shabbat on the Shabbat. You know, you rest on the Shabbat. In fact, if you've been to Israel or, or, or those of you who will go to Israel, you will hear when we get near Shabbat, you'll hear Shabbat Shalom. Everybody says to one another, Shabbat Shalom. 
have a peaceful Sabbath, right? Because that's the idea. How can you have rest without peace? And really, how can you have peace without rest? So Shabbat Shalom. It's a, it's a great Jewish expression. And really, it, it, I, as I've learned it over the years, it's like, I want to live in Shabbat Shalom. I like that, you know? Um, so, so God rested because his work was complete. That's one type of rest. And then again, it's said in this place, verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. And since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, David wrote Psalm 95, today, after such a long time, as it's been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Some of you are thinking, Okay, he just keeps repeating this refrain over and over and over again. What is he talking about? I mean, I get the idea, you're thinking, that he's referring back to, to the event in Numbers 13 and 14 when they came to Kadesh Barnea and they rebelled there and all that. Oh, by the way, by the way, they rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. And God says to Moses, yo, Mo, come here. You tell them they're not going in. And it wasn't because God said, I've had enough. You know, he's not a man who, who does what I would have done or what you would have done, okay? Not like that. But the seriousness of their rebellion, what they rebelled against, is, is key here. So he says, yo, Mo, this isn't happening. And so Moses delivers the bad news. And then the people, they think it over. They go, no, 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 uh, you know, never mind. No, 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 we, we do it. just kidding. We're going to go. Like, we're going to go. God says to Moses, you tell them, don't do it. Bad news. Don't go there. And they said, no, 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 you'll see. We're good. And so they tried. And when they tried, if you've read Numbers 13 and 14, when they tried, bad news. Because they were defeated. Why were they defeated? Because they, the, the ten spies were right in one sense. We were as grasshoppers in their sight and also in our own. God will not share his glory with anybody else. God says, I will bring you in. You will survive if you go under my power and under my protection. But don't you go in there alone or you're, you're dead meat, which is what happened to them. God will not share his glory. So even though they repented, God didn't accept it. Close the door. But here he is, so that's 1400 B.C., David's writing in this, nominally speaking, 1,000 B.C., 400 years later. And David's saying, today, if you hear his voice, what's David saying? What's the author telling us that David is saying? The author is telling us that David is saying, today. Today is the day that we think of today as this day, the 26th, or whatever Phil tends to think it is, <laughs> of October, okay? But today is the idea... See, Tomorrow is the lazy man's today. I'll do it tomorrow, right? That's the lazy man's. That's the sluggard's way. That's today for the lazy person. But for God, today, today's the day of repentance. Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day to enter into the deeper things of God. Today, he has it for us today. Shame on us for just saying, yeah, some other time. Because we think God is so loving. And you know, that's one of the problems for many of us. We've allowed pop theology to tell us all the time that God is love. I'm not saying God is not love. 
But I challenge you, you look it up, how many times you're going to find in your Bible that God is love? No, the adjective that's used for God is holy. You find that far, 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 far more than God is love. Of course he's loving. But we've allowed the pop, pop theology, the, well, the Rick Warrens. I know there's more. Sometimes they're, I, I just can't allow their names to be in my mind. Um, but we've allowed some of these pop preachers to tell us so much about God's love. We come away with the idea that, you know what, I can do it anytime. Why bother now? When in reality, if God's saying, okay, you're, you're in Christ now. You're born again. I have this for you. I want you to have my spirit. Yes, my spirit indwells you. Now I want to, you to experience the power of my spirit and to walk in the power of my spirit and to understand the deeper things of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. God desires that for us and he wants us to do it today. He doesn't want us to harden our hearts, but if we will soften our hearts and come back to him and say, Lord, forgive me. He'll always forgive you. That's, it's always today in that regard. And so he says here, wherever I left off, because it was somewhere in here, uh, again, he designates a certain day, verse 7, in David, saying, today, after such a long time, it's been said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He says, because look, because of Joshua, now think about that, Joshua it would be 1400 B.C., 40 years after, the, uh, or 38 years after the, the wilderness issue at Kadesh Barnea. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. See, by Joshua, in other words, by entering the promised land. Yes, there was an element of rest, but not the fullness of the rest that God had desired for his people. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God has ceased from his works. Therefore, he says, let us be diligent. Diligence is not um, a word that's used as much anymore in the West. Uh, I, in many ways, it was an older generation who was more concerned about diligence. But he's saying diligence is important. Let us be diligent. Let us be sure we're doing this. Let's get on with it, in other words. Let's be diligent to enter that rest lest anybody fall according to the same example of disobedience. Why? Because the word of God, and look at the words he uses here, because the word of God is alive. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God pierces even to the place, the dividing place of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And the word of God discerns the thoughts and the intents or the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Let's park here for a moment. This, is, this, is, this preaches, but we don't have time to get into all that tonight. But just think of what he's saying here. There's so much, uh, I just got to pick and choose. The word of God is alive. We tend to think sometimes, and, and I'm not mocking anybody when I say this, it's just like sometimes we don't know how else to think about it, so we just think the Bible's a magic book. 
I mean, it, because let's face it, if, if you've spent some time uh, in, in Jesus Christ, if you're born again, and, and you, you find that when you read the Bible, like, wow, I, I feel like I read that passage a month ago, but I'm getting something else out of it today than I got a month ago. Or I read it last year and I thought it meant this, but now I'm seeing it a different way. Well, okay, we can start to look at it as a magic book. You know, I don't mean magic in the you know, witchcraft sense, but I mean it's like, it's really different. Well, yeah, it really is different. It, there is no book that compares to the Word of God, and that's why, because it's the Word of God. Psalm 138, verse 2, is, and I know I've said this many times, but it's, it's one of those astounding verses. Some of the modern uh, translations kind of muddle it, I think. But it says that God exalts his word even above his name. Now, if you've ever studied how God considers his name, how holy is the name yod heh vav Yehovah, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. If, if, you've, if you've read that in the scripture and you understand how highly he exalts his name, and then to read that he exalts his word even above that, like, we need to take pause here and realize this is far more important than TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and all the other silly stuff that we get ourselves involved in because the Word of God really is alive. How can the Word, how can a book be alive? That's a rhetorical question. But have you ever really thought about that? How can a book be alive? Doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. You know, in, in, in our context, a book's a book. It's ink on paper. Okay, it's, it's an old book. Okay, and there's a lot of cool things about it. And it's, it's 66 books written by 40 different writers over about 1,500 years. And it has one basic theme that runs through it. But it's still a book. It's still ink on paper. But there's something so much more here. How is it that it's alive? How is it that it's powerful? How can it be powerful? Well, it has to do with the way I receive it. Because I remember when I tried to read the word of God before I was saved, it was like thud. I just never, I didn't get it. I think most of us had that experience. So it has a lot to do with the receiver, right? So we got a transmitter, but the, the receiver isn't on. That's part of the issue. I suspect, and I don't know how to explain it, but I think part of the answer here is that the word of God is God. And if you start to look at it that way, that explains how the word of God is alive and therefore is powerful and therefore is so sharp that it divides. See, there are many people and, and many in the church in general who don't believe there's a difference between soul and spirit, except here's a proof text, there are other proof texts, but there, here's a proof text that, that there's soul and there's spirit. God is triune. He says, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, let us, he's speaking among the Trinity, let us now make man in our image and in our likeness. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. In what way are we in God's image? Well, I think one of the most obvious is that we are triune, body, which is the most obvious part of us. Soul, which tends, however you look at that, but I tend to look at it as our personality, 
the operating system. It's not, not the brain. The brain's an organ that requires the mind to drive it. And the mind, or mind being another word for soul, the suke, or we get psyche from that. Suke in Greek, psyche in English. We get psychology out of that. And the spirit, and they're different. Before we're born again, because the spirit is dead, until we're born again, the spirit comes alive. We can have a lot of relig religious experience or spiritual experiences, and we think it's God, and it's not. Again, I don't want to go down that whole hole here. I'm just saying there's all that. And even think about psychology itself. And I'm not here to just beat on psychology, but the problem with psychology, because it's not coming from a born-again perspective, psychology attempts to infer what's happening internally in a person. Psychology, try to follow the logic. Psychology, the study of the suke, the psyche, attempts to infer what is really happening inside the person based upon outside observation. God, by comparison, and God's word, or God uses his word, which is alive and is powerful and is so sharp that it can divide between the suke and the pneuma, the soul and the spirit. And that it, key phrase at the end, it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What does that mean? Well, my thoughts are the things I'm thinking. The intents are the why I'm thinking it. See, see the difference? I don't even understand the difference very often. Okay, now your spouse probably can observe those things. Okay, well, I should put it a different way. Wives can usually discern those things. Guys tend to be a little bit duller. But, um, right? I'm just, every woman in here knows that. Joe knows. I can tell by the way he's laughing. Um, but God is the one who knows it fully. Because if we really tried to understand ourselves, that's a fearful thing. I mean, the more we understand about ourselves, the scarier it gets. We actually tend to find out, but oh, I'm not as great as I thought I was. So the, the failing of psychology is it attempts to infer what a person is inside just by watching the actions, okay? God alone understands the difference between suke and pneuma, soul and spirit, and he uses his word, empowered by his spirit, to do that. Man, there's so many things we can get into, but I, we're not going to do it tonight. But look at what he says then. And there is, verse 13, there is no creature, not one person in this room, there is no creature that's hidden from his sight, but all things. This is going to be one of the scariest verses you'll ever know. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You will give an account. If you're not in Jesus Christ and you refuse him to the day of your death, you'll give the, you won't give an account. You'll just hear the judgment at the great white throne when the books are open and everyone is judged according to their sins that are written in the book. But if you do know Jesus Christ, all of that 
All of that was judged. All of that was paid for on the cross. But at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll give an account for the way we live because all things are naked and open, the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And we'll give an account for those things. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is a mind blower to me. That is an absolute mind blower to think that Jesus Christ, as great as I try to understand him as being, because he's fully man and yet at the same time fully God. So I, I, that, that's, I disconnect right there trying to understand how that works. I mean, I got the, I, I got the words. I could pass the test in seminary of oh, the hypostatic union of God and me. Yeah, I, I, I know how to spell it. I can't explain why. I can say, well, the monks made pretzels to try to explain the Trinity. I, I don't know. I just don't understand how all that works. And yet, as much as he's fully God as well as fully man, here he was tempted in all points. Wait a minute. Uh, that's just, don't be looking at me. You look at yourself for a minute. Think of all the ways you've been tempted and fallen for that matter. Amen. And he was tempted in all those ways and everything else. Yet he never sinned. Yet he never sinned. Therefore, yeah, because of that, right? So we can come boldly. Look, you're in Christ. You've received forgiveness for your sins. You're born again. You're assured of his love. You know your sins are paid for. Our great high priest is great. He, he completely identifies with us. He was tempted in every way that you were, yet he never sinned, and yet was willing to pay for your sins. He died. He rose again. He's ascended on high. And he's coming back, incidentally. Sooner than later. So therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's like the greatest offer in the Bible. Come boldly. You don't have to come meekly. Come boldly before the throne. God, you know me. You know everything about me. There's nothing to hide anyhow. I, I can't hide anything from you, so okay, let's talk. For every high priest taken from among men, like we don't think of high priests. You, you may have a, uh, an Episcopalian background or a Roman Catholic background. You have some idea of a priest. You know, bells and smells and the different things in Rome. No, you know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not mocking anything. That's just like, you know, I wasn't raised in that. But some of you were. And you know what it was like. So you, have, you might have this idea of what a priest is. But he's talking to, okay, settle down. He's talking to Jewish Christians. They know what a priest is. There are, there are, there are the Kohenim, the, the, the priests, and then there's the Kohen Hagadol, the great high priest. The first one's Aaron, Exodus 16. God says to Moses, Aaron will be the priest. You're not going to be the priest. 
he'll be the priest. You lead the people, he'll be the priest. Be the high priest. And from him and his sons, then, and that whole group of, of, of Levites, will come all those who will be the priests. But a high priest, the high priest as opposed to all the other priests, a high priest was the, the one who made intercession for the people. Regular basis, and especially on the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And for every high priest taken from among men, they understood that. That high priest, beginning with Aaron, he's appointed for men in things pertaining to God so that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So but now, uh, let's just kind of step back for a minute. A priest, a prophet. Uh, the role of a prophet is to represent God to the people. Thus saith the Lord, right? The, the prophet professes. We always think prophecy is telling things in the future. Yes, that's a part of what we find in prophecies. The primary role of a prophet, by the way, if you read through the Old Testament, was when the people were in rebellion, the role of a prophet was to come to the people and call them back to the covenant of God. Like, yo, you're too far afield. It's time to come back to the truth. It's time to come back to the, to the covenant, what God has called us to. That was the role of the prophet. In our day and age, we tend to think, oh, it's all the cool stuff about the things that are going to happen in the future. No, that's a sideline. That's, that's something else that's there. The primary role was to represent God to the people. By contrast, the role of the priest was to represent the people to God, to intercede for the people. You know, when you read through, one of the, there's a couple of books in the Bible. One of them is Leviticus. That I, yeah, I always joke that you know people open their Bibles to. If I say open your Bible to Leviticus, there's going to be moths that fly out because most people hardly ever read the book of Leviticus. But if you do, you know it's a very bloody book. It really is. And yet, I got to tell you, it doesn't go far enough. What I mean by that, I mean it gives us all the information. But if you were really to kind of stop and go slower through it and think in, in word pictures, like what does that look like? In our day and age, not many people gut animals. If you're a hunter, yeah, see, ugh, right? But aren't you thankful if you're, if, if, you're a, if you're carnivorous, like some of us? And by the way, God commanded that. Genesis chapter nine, eat meat, he said. Just saying. I didn't, I didn't say vegans are in sin. I'm just saying. I'm just saying God commanded to eat meat. Anyhow, um, so we think meat just appears in the store. But if, if you think about it, you have to gut the animal. You've got to kill it. You've got to bleed it. You've got to gut it. You've got to do all these things in order to get the meat that you want to eat. And anybody who's done that knows that it's a heavy, time-consuming, messy Job, it really is. And you think about the Levite's job on a daily basis, all day long, the animals that were being slain and gutted. And when you sinned, you brought an animal. And, you, and, and, and the priest did not examine you. Like, oh, tell me all about your sin. No, that's not what he did. That's between you and God. He examined that, that animal to see that it was worthy. And then he handed you the knife. And you picked up the head and slit the throat and bled it into a silver bowl. 
You, why? See, look at, watch everybody. If you could look around and see everybody's faces right now, it's like, <laughs> right. That's the point. See, we've so sanitized the Bible in general, we didn't stop to think about what's really going on. Why? Because, by the way, not one of those sacrifices, and it went on for thousands of years, but, but not one of those sacrifices ever expiated someone's sin. I mean, and there's, no, there's no sacrifice that ever took away anybody's sin. Say, wait a minute, why'd they do it? Because it was a representation of the one who was coming. It was a picture of the one who was coming. And so that's why he'll say later on, the, the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats day after day in the tabernacle never takes away sins. It was done as a type. It was done as a picture to tell the people to look ahead to the one that God was sending, that one day one would pay for it. Oh, that, that's an important idea. That's why I say when you read Leviticus, you, gotta, kinda, you kinda don't want to, but you really should stop and realize how shocking this really was and how costly. I mean, if you're gonna be honest before God, you could go through a lot of sheep pretty quickly if you're bringing your sheep to pay for your sin. Wouldn't that cause you to be a lot more diligent about the way that you're keeping the 613 laws. That's a lot of laws. Anyhow, so, so I know I was somewhere and I'll come back now. So the high priest, right? The high priest is taken from among men. Aaron, Exodus 16. And then there were challenges. You know what happened in Korah's rebellion, number 16. Korah, who was also, you know, in in, in the bigger family of, of the Levites, but not in the line of priests. He challenged Moses and Aaron, but specifically Aaron, he's really challenging. You know, why you? How come, how come we can't do it? And then Moses said, well, look, you know, why don't we, uh, I'll go to God and, and, and we'll see what God wants to do. And I'll come back to you tomorrow. He comes back tomorrow, Korah, here's the deal. I talked to God and he said this, you bring all your people who want to be priests and I'll bring Aaron and, and all of them and we'll stand here and God will decide who's the priest. And, and if he rejects any of us, you know, he'll, he'll just swallow us up. And Korah said, good deal. And the earth opened up and Korah and all of his family and everybody else just went right down the hole. Don't mess with the living God, right? Why? Because God won't share his glory with anybody and he has a specific line who he said he wanted to be priest. That's important as we get into this book now and start to understand what he's saying about Jesus, our great high priest, because Aaron, as great as he was in terms of what he represented, and then everyone who came after Aaron as a high priest were only men, and all they could do is to lead a system of animal sacrifice that never actually took away sin. It was just a picture. And it wasn't for nothing. But it was done day after day as a picture for the people and to prepare their hearts for a better covenant and a better deliverer and a better salvation and a much better way overall. So he can have compassion, verse 2, on those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness, a regular 
high priest. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. Aaron himself had to offer sacrifice for sin because he was, in that regard, no better than anybody else. He's still just a man. That was just his position. But he was still a man, just as much of a sinner as anybody else. And no man takes this honor to himself. Again, like we have Korah, or later on in 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul. He's the king and he steps in the role of the priest and he actually offers up sacrifices and he was taken out of uh, his position as, as king. And we, we studied you know, King Uzziah a couple weeks ago. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ didn't glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, in other words, the father said to him, you are my son, which is a quote out of Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And he says in another place, Psalm 110. By the way, Psalm 110 is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. It's the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament, Psalm 110. It's uh, five or six verses long. And these four verses, uh, this is verse four here. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications. Think of the, think of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, we pronounce it Gatshmanim in Hebrew, the place of the olive press. Those of you who've been to, to Israel, you've seen Gethsemane. There are still olive trees there, by the way. It's kind of interesting. Olive trees that were cut down by the Romans when, when they conquered, cut down by the Turks. Um, all these trees that were cut down, but olive trees are different than other trees because the roots continue to live. And so you can cut them off right at the ground level and they continue to grow. Those trees in Gatshmanim, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're the same trees that were there when Jesus, when Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And God said, there's no other way. You keep going. He was under such pressure. Remember, it's the place of the olive press. You have olive trees. That, that's where you would you'd get your olive oil. And there's four different types of oil. You, I, we'll do it some other time. But um, it's the place of the olive press. You there's four different squeezings of the olives to get different grades of oil. And he sweat. Is it Luke who tells us that? Yeah. Uh, as it were, great drops of blood. It's hard to, for any of us to comprehend the pressure the internal pressure he was under. And you got to know that Satan was there the whole time saying, just walk away. You know, you think of the temptation in the wilderness. Three different temptations that Jesus was subjected to. And then we read, and then the tempter left him until a more opportune time. Wow. And the opportune time was right there. At the most important point, and you gotta know that the devil was saying, just walk away. Just walk away. Just walk away. And he knew what he had to do. And even as a man, imagine knowing how vital this was, that this must happen, and yet what it would cost him personally to do this. 
in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers, three times he prayed, Father, if there's any other way. There weren't. Three times he prayed. God said, keep going. With vehement cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. What do you mean he was heard? He was heard. God answered him, you know. God answered him. In the resurrection. The resurrection was the answer to that, ultimately, to that prayer. The resurrection was the answer that sin had been paid for and here is proof because death is the result of sin and because Jesus Christ conquered death, therefore it's proof that he had conquered sin on that cross. So that was ultimately, that's the answer to, to his tears, his fears, his cries. And though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become, and I'm not going to touch on Melchizedek tonight. We're going to come back to Melchizedek. It's very important. There's not enough time to get into Melchizedek, but there's a lot more that, that he speaks of here in, in future chapters. So we'll come back to what happened, I, and I would recommend you go back tonight and read Genesis 14 and how Abraham met Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Melech, king, Tzedek, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. But he was also the king of, it wasn't Jerusalem at that time. It wasn't even Jebus. It was Salem, or Shalom, was the name of the city. Peace. So he was Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. He was also the king of peace. A very interesting character. And people have all kinds of questions, and most of them were wrong about. But he's certainly a type of Christ. And the point of, that the author is going to make here, beginning here and on through chapter 7 and beyond, is Jesus is the great high priest not like Aaron, who's from the order of the Levites, but rather after the order, a different kind of a priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So we'll come back to that. But look at what he says, because he's speaking to people who understand all that much better than most of us in this room. He, so what does he say? Verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain why, since you, now listen closely to what he's saying to these people. And this applies, you know, if the shoe fits. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Wow. Insult your audience, Paul. For though, now look what he's saying. Look at what he's saying. Second generation Christians who in many ways are closer to the things of God in terms of experience than we have been in terms of our upbringings. He's saying, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Think about that for a minute. We have this idea that, well, you know, God brings some teachers in the church and the rest of us, so we just show up and listen. But he, what's he saying? By this time you ought to be teachers. Really? What do you mean I'm supposed to be a teacher? Actually, let's, by extension, what does that say to us? 
If I was saying it, you'd be offended. But the, the Apostle Paul says, all of us in this room, by this time, should be teachers. You say, well, I'm not a teacher. I didn't go to any school. I don't know. He says, you should be. What do you mean I should be? Well, by our lives, first of all. We should demonstrate the truth of God's word, even by our lives. We should be able to open the word of God and explain so many things to people. He says we become dull of hearing. And we have. The church in America, certainly, has become very much dull of hearing. We're, a, we're, we're sermon connoisseurs. We're preacher connoisseurs. Well, I, I, like the, I don't like it when this guy preaches. You know, I, I, you know, I don't connect. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm talking about. It happens here. It happens here. I've heard it. And, and by this time, you ought to be teachers. Oh, for although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the basics, he's saying, the foundations. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. I mean, you know, well, you know what it's like. Someone has a baby. Oh, they're so cute, you know. And, 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 and after they're, they're, they're not nursing anymore, you start feeding the, the only people in the world who ever should eat peas. But, you know, those mashed up peas, and you put them on this little rubber-coated spoon. <laughs> cute, you know. Or I still remember, you know, Kristen, when she was a little kid, and we could hardly afford, you know, like asparagus, but they were like a delicacy to us. And I remember giving it to her, and she said, you're destroying asparagus, you know. Uh, and, but it was cute. It was cute, you know. And you look at a little kid, it's so cute. Or lima beans. I'm glad when the kids would eat lima, because I don't think... Lima beans don't deserve to be eaten by anybody. I, as far as I'm concerned, they say a lima bean should be eaten with, you know, a big lump, like a quarter pound of butter, throw it in there. Uh, yeah, and, and dump the beans, I'll eat the butter at that point, because it's just, they're just like, the gag factor, right? But for a little kid, you know, it's so cute. It's so cute. But to come back when they're seven, or 10, or 27, and they're still eating like that. You say, this is wrong. I'm not talking about someone with, well, I'm not talking about someone with a developmental problem. I'm talking about someone who's otherwise regular, ready to go. But they've chosen not to grow. And they just want to eat milk products and pudding. He says, you've come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. It's not cool for a grown-up to be a babe, is the point. We know that in regular life, and that's the point as a Christian. We accept it among Christians, but it if it was anybody else in any other field, we'd say, that person, is there's something way wrong with that person. So question, why don't we criticize it when we see it in someone else? The answer, no one's going to like what I have to say. You're going to walk out of here and say, well, you know, I got a few laughs, but, you know, I didn't like what he said at the end because I took it personally. Well, I don't care if you take it personally. It's still the truth. The reason we don't criticize the Christian who never grows is because we haven't. And if we criticize them with one finger, we'd be pointing back at ourselves with three others. And so we don't say anything, and we allow everybody just to go along, and we'll just listen to that one guy who talks. By now, you all ought to be teachers, he says. 
Now, somebody's going to come up to me later on and say, that, well, you know, I, I understand what he's saying, but it really doesn't apply to me because, you know, no, he's saying that there's a maturity that God expects out of each one of us. He's not talking about what profession we have. He's not talking about the position we have in the church. He's saying in our lives. We had a, we had a conversation at staff, we had a staff lunch today, and we were talking about the people who had influence over our lives. And some of us were just answering about there were certain people, it was just the way they lived. And the, the influence they had on our lives just by the way they lived. They didn't say, here, take this book, this is how to become a Christian, read it, and I'll give you a test later on. No, we, we, it was almost like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Because that's really what being a Christian is supposed to be all about. For by now, he says, you ought to be teachers. He says, but... <laughs> You're partaking only of milk. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're a babe. A solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Ah, so that's the reason that so many in the church of Jesus Christ today are so stuck in so many sins, living together addictions, pornography, all these things, because no one challenges them. They'd rather grow in those things than to grow in Christ. But I got a ticket that says, when I die, I'm going to heaven. Ah, there's so much more. He's saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. It's time to soften your heart and follow Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.